be here. Um, it's always a pleasure to be back at this church. Um, as, I've, as I've been reflecting, oh, children are dismissed for children's church or to escape through the church building if that's what you need to do. Sorry, I'm untrained to that announcement. I should go practice before Urbana. If you watch a lot of TV this season, which I trust you don't, but somehow we seem to, all of the made-for-TV movies around this time, as well as everything on the big screen, has a certain dull inevitability to it, doesn't it? It's the slightly dysfunctional family that exists somewhere in the background, the person who doesn't want to go home but ends up having to go home, and then suddenly there's an epiphany, and you discover the true meaning of Christmas, which is giving gifts to one another and being with family. It's a tragic story, if only because it's so banal and so thin um, and so repeated. The best stories, I think, aren't inevitable in that sense where you just think from the very moment you watch the screen turn on, you think, I know how this is going to end. I know where this is going to go. The best stories are those stories which you get to the end and there's this surprise that comes that's completely unexpected, but when you think back to how the story was set up, it was impossible for the story to go anywhere else, right? It delights you. It troubles you. It surprises you. It makes you long to see the story happen again. So you can see how the author has set up this surprise in such a way that there was no other way to do it and yet it's incredibly satisfying the way it happened. To pick a story of the season, it's the story of the gifts of the Magi. You see this poor couple struggling, the woman with beautiful hair, the man with his one treasure, this pocket watch, and they struggle and they save, um, and they scrape by in order to offer each other the perfect gift at Christmas out of their love. And of course, the husband sells his pocket watch to buy his wife combs, which will show off her hair. And the wife has shown, uh, cut off her hair in order to buy her husband a little fob to hold the pocket watch. And you think, of course that had to have happened, but it was so unexpected and so beautiful because of it. For those of you who have slightly higher nerd credentials like myself, it's exactly like The Lord of the Rings, which isn't seasonal, but it's still a great story. You realize right when you get to the end, of course Frodo couldn't have got destroyed the ring himself. It had to be someone else because the reality was it, the ring corrupts. And of course in the end it was going to be Gollum who saves everyone. And of course the hero was going to fail. Because what Pokin was partially getting at, I hope I didn't destroy the story for anyone. I was trusting that you've seen the movie at least. But there's something about the importance of um, a golden age passing and embracing the new of people sacrificing themselves for others, for achieving what they cannot themselves take. Over the last two weeks as a congregation, we've been exploring, I think, how there's a certain inevitability to the surprise of the Christmas story. Two weeks ago, you read through the genealogy, and I have to admit, the Matthew genealogy is one of my favorites. There are a lot of genealogies in Scripture where I just think, Please, Lord, let this go more quickly. But Matthew, in his subtle way, is so delightful, isn't he? He weaves in all of the incest, adultery, and brokenness of the family of David in these just quiet, gentle ways. Um, you know, uh, Boaz, uh, Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Let that pass without mention. 
David was the follower of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And, you know, Judah um, and his brothers, and Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Enough said. I love how he just weaves it in. And in a culture which only valued men, only va- uh, valued proper Israelites, only valued a royal line, these three women who come out of nowhere, well, actually not out of nowhere, right? Out, out of Moab, out of shame, out of being abused, being objectified, get woven into the story. If you know the story of David, you see God's mercy from beginning to end begin to appear, and it all begins to culminate to this story of Jesus, who's Christ. Last week, you looked at the prophecy in Isaiah 7, and there's just a hint of what's going to happen next. There's going to be this unexpected birth. It's going to redeem a people who are broken, who've been oppressed, who are politically out of the outs, who are militarily of no great consequence. But it's going to be a birth which is going to bring new life, which is going to bring new hope, which is going to bring restoration and renovation. But we don't quite see how it's going to happen. And then the story continues and picks up till you pick up the birth narrative in Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Unlike Luke's birth narrative, this one doesn't focus on Mary. She's an incidental character. It actually focuses on the perspectives and interests of Joseph. It's a perspective and interest I think that's often lost because Mary's story is much more dramatic in many ways. Uh, Because of our Catholic brothers and sisters, it has a lot more prominence. And because, you know, really what she goes through is incredibly dramatic, as any pregnancy and birth is. This one's a little bit more quiet, but I think there's a hint of surprise and an inevitability that occurs in Joseph's story as well. Let's look at it. Let's look at how Joseph responds to this incredible news that's happening around him. Now, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about, Matthew tells us. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, consider Joseph's dilemma at this point. Joseph's described as a righteous man, a just man, a man who honors the law, who's um, faithful in uh, in his obedience and observance of it. And Mary... This woman pledged to be married to him, who was probably a young teen at the time, was in a relationship with Joseph which isn't quite similar to any other relationship that we have now. Engagement at the time of the New Testament was about a year-long process. You'd be engaged. You'd then return back to your own parents' homes. The woman would live with her parents. The husband would live with his parents. And there was a year-long period in part, I suspect, to judge people's suitability for marriage, not that they interacted much, if at all, but also because um, it was important at that time, after the marriage had been announced, that the woman didn't have a child in that intervening year so that you would know that any child born of that union was born from that union. It wasn't a, she's pregnant, marry her off, the husband will never know kind of situation. 
The law considered this kind of engagement binding. The Old Testament actually refers to women who've been engaged in this way as the wife of the man. So it wasn't merely a, I have an intention to marry you. It was, in point of fact, we are married in everything, but actually living together and consummating this marriage. And so think about where Joseph is at. He is married legally and spiritually to this woman. He's a just man who cares about the law and its observance. And for all that he knows, his wife has been unfaithful. Deuteronomy 22, 23 through 24 tells us that if a woman who's engaged in this way is found to be pregnant, she's committed adultery. And then she and the man who she committed adultery adultery with should be put to death by stoning. Later, rabbinic commentaries state that, well, if we can't get away with stoning people, because under the Romans they didn't have the power to do that, divorce was the requirement, that you were forbidden to marry the woman who had betrayed you in this way. For Joseph, a just man who honors the law, the command is pretty clear, put Mary aside. Not only does the law require this, but let's not forget, in addition to the requirements of the law, imagine the sense of betrayal that he's feeling right now. His wife has betrayed him in the most personal and intimate and humiliating way possible. I think we would think less of Joseph and possibly of his love for Mary if he didn't want some sort of punishment, if he wasn't angry, if his thoughts weren't filled with revenge, I don't know if you, any of you have had the tragedy of watching um, a friend's family go through uh, the consequences of adultery. My wife and I actually had lunch just last week on Sunday with a friend of ours whose husband betrayed their marital vows and who's since left the family. The sense of pain, of humiliation, of brokenness and of anger in this friend that we had lunch with is palpable when you talk to her. It's terribly recursive because while she's incredibly angry and furious at the choices that her husband has made, she's incredibly wounded because she still loves. And that very love that she has for her husband makes the betrayal even sharper, the pain more real, and her desire for some sort of punishment actually more true. Right? That makes sense to us. If somebody had an affair and the spouse said, it just doesn't matter, don't worry about it. You'd question not only their morality and their holiness, you'd question something about their love. So Joseph is caught between a rock and a hard place, isn't he? Between the demands of the law to punish Mary, as well as his own anger at the sin which he believes has occurred. And so he's mulling over and thinks about what to do. Some commentators have pointed out that this may be the very period where Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. It's less a trip about curiosity and perhaps more a trip about shame. Those of us who are old enough probably know people who, when they became pregnant unexpectedly, were sent away to go visit relatives, to wait an appropriate time. What's astounding and surprising about Joseph, I think, is that his response demonstrates grace while still seeking and satisfying the demands of holiness. Joseph intends to do far more for Mary than the law requires, although 
far less than we blithely assume might be required given our familiarity with the Christmas story. Even though the law demands punishment, Joseph demands grace. He intends to divorce her, but not publicly in court where her shame and her sin would be made known to everybody in the village and town, which would further shame her and her family, but probably to divorce her privately, which under the law only required two other witnesses and a simple statement, I free you, go marry whoever you want. Though he could have asked for her death, Joseph is actually offering her her life. Though he could have exposed her, accused her, and shamed her publicly, he refrains by choosing to act privately, covering her shame and protecting her reputation as best he can in that time and place. Why doesn't Joseph just forgive and forget? Just let it go? It's not that easy, I think. Because he'd have to set aside the law of Moses to do so, which demands justice. And frankly, Joseph just doesn't have that kind of power. And he can't do it while remaining just. But even within these limitations, isn't it amazing that Joseph satisfies the requirements of holiness while still demonstrating mercy? You wonder with a father like that and a foundation like that, what a child of his might become or might try to do. Joseph just doesn't demonstrate holiness and grace, but he listens to God. He finds his identity and he obeys. Look at verses 20 through 24. But after he considered this, after he made a choice to demonstrate both mercy and holiness, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He's made a decision to show mercy as well as to commit himself to holiness. And in that moment, Surprisingly, but inevitably, I think, God speaks. Because whenever you do the things that God does, whenever you put yourself in the place where God is, where holiness and mercy intersect, God makes his presence known, and God shows up in this case and sends Joseph an angel and gives him the wildest set of statements that I suspect a man of that time, or a man of any time, could ever expect to hear. Consider his greeting. Joseph Son of David. He's completely reframed Joseph's experience now, hasn't he? You're not merely Joseph, the aggrieved husband who's been betrayed, potentially. You're not merely Joseph who lives in first century Palestine. You're not merely a simple carpenter living in a mo kind of uh, modest metropolitan area of northern um, Galilee. You are a descendant of David. You are an heir of the promises that God made to his people, to King David himself, that someday an heir of his would sit on the throne. Someday God would restore his people. Someday God would continue to fulfill his promises that an heir of David would reign on a throne forever and ever. This isn't merely about you as an individual. It's about who you are as part of a people that God has blessed and called and sent. 
Joseph's entire identity is reshaped, and it's fascinating to me that Matthew chooses the exact same language to describe Joseph in this passage that he starts out Matthew 1 with. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And the angel appears, Joseph, son of David, that is who you are. And it's critical that that's who you are because through that promise that God made, God will be faithful. It's not merely Joseph who finds his identity in this passage. It's the child that's going to be born. This is no illegitimate child, Joseph, the angel seems to be saying. This is no accident, nor is it an embarrassment. This is the fulfillment of a promise that God made. You will name this child Jesus, the angel tells Joseph. God is our salvation. This child will be more than just an average child. This child will share the same name as Joshua, who brought the people back into the promised land. This child is going to be the salvation of God to forgive our sins. This child will be Emmanuel. And even though Jesus is never actually called Emmanuel in the New Testament, nobody ever refers to him by this name, I think when the Gospel of John says, in him, in Jesus, we have seen the glory of the Father, the one and only, he made his tabernacle with us, and he dwelt among us with grace and with truth. They were testifying to the reality of that name. When Jesus is with us, God is with us. And the promises that Isaiah spoke into being, that someday a young maid, a virgin, of marriageable age would come with child unexpectedly. There's going to be a surprising birth. Someday when that happens, God is going to redeem his people. Someday when that happens, our oppression and our exile will end. Someday the promises will come to fulfillment. And two chapters later, in Isaiah chapter 9, unto us a child will be born. And this child won't be an ordinary child, but it will be our mighty God, our everlasting father, our prince of peace. Joseph, your identity isn't merely your identity. Your identity is found in the long-term promises of what God intended from the very beginning and will complete at the very end. Your story is much bigger than you thought. It's not just about your own domestic drama. It's about the great historical salvation drama that God intended that you are participating in and that you're going to find your place in. And it's not merely Joseph and his son who's going to find a place in that story. It's Mary as well. Because you can imagine when Mary first explained, really, this child is God's, how Joseph must have heard that. And yet, the angel says to him, take Mary home as your wife because what's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She's a trustworthy witness, Joseph. She's received what God has promised. She's accepted the burden God has placed on her. Now I'm inviting you. Weave your story together. Bring it home. I think when we allow God to name us and our identity, our future becomes clear, our hope becomes sure, and the world becomes big enough for us to undertake whatever God invites us to do. As part of my job at Urbana, um, I not only give announcements, but I also sell the books of the day. And so um, in order to distinguish between my pastoral role and giving announcements and shaping a convention, I put on a little red Santa hat, talk about um, after Christmas sales. 
uh, that sell usually $15 books for five. As a Chinese American, this is incredibly satisfying to me because I love sales. I love giving people bargains. And so I try to help them think through the books. And in order to do it with at least a little integrity, I try to read all nine books. It doesn't take that long. <laughs> Reading goes pretty fast. Uh, 10 minutes a day gives you 10 books a year. I was reading a book called um, The Good News About Injustice by Gary Haugen, who's the founder of International Justice Mission, an organization he founded after a stint in Rwanda representing um, the United Nations investigating the genocide there in 1996. As a lawyer, he wondered how could lawyers be a force for good rather than for evil? It's a question that's perplexed humanity for many years, and he at least found one answer, which was what would it be like if lawyers took their skills in investigation um, and in advocacy, and rather than merely defending commercial interests, we defended the interests of those who have no voice. And so International Justice Mission trains lawyers all across the world to use their skills to advocate for people who are voiceless. And um, I don't know if this is a term that's ever appropriate to use in missions, but it's the sexy mission right now. Everybody wants to work with IJM. One of the stories that they tell is that often they work in the land of Thailand, where, as you know, there's a lot of prostitution, much of it forced much of it offered um, by children who've been abducted or given to pimps by their families in order to make a little money for the, um, for the larger family as a whole. Gary tells a story um, of a, long, a young 11-year-old woman, a girl really, who was given by her family to um, a brothel who was used by at least 7 to 15 men a night, who I think in a moment of both divine mercy, but also um, as an affirmation of what she believed because she was a Christian, wrote the world, words of Psalm 42 above her bed. And what she said is, every night as they took my body, I could look at those words and at least protect my soul. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for yet I will praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I remember you. It begins even earlier. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night. Will men say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my heart. How I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God. With shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. Gary says, um, when they were finally able to convince the police to come and rescue her, as the IJM workers came in and um, participated in that rescue from that brothel, they said, as tragic as the situation was, they were arrested by the words that she had scrawled on that wall. That day after day, night after night, she stared at, prayed, and trusted in. And as that young woman went through aftercare and then eventually went through high school and then to college, what she has continually and consistently testified to is that those verses gave her hope because it forced her to remember God. It forced her to remember that her experience wasn't the totality of the story, that God's story of salvation was much bigger than her own experience and yet it would include her experience and redemption would occur and that she could trust God for it, both in the present and in the future. That bigger picture of our new identity, of how God names us, often gives us the courage to continue. 
when our courage would fail us. And that's why I think the angel says to Joseph, do not be afraid. Do not hesitate to do what's hard. Do not hesitate to endure what's going to happen, Joseph, because I know who you are. I know who Mary is and I know who that child is and all will be well. And you will experience redemption because God will be with us and God will save. And so Joseph does an astounding thing for a man of that culture in that time. He submits. When he wakes up, it says in verse 24, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him to do. Joseph listens to God, finds his identity, and gets caught up in God's plans for salvation by choosing to submit and to be obedient, even to a difficult, painful road. You wonder, with a father like that and a foundation like that, what a child of his might learn to become and what a child of his might learn to do. Joseph doesn't merely try to act with holiness and grace or follow a painful path because he knows his identity. But in a literal, concrete way, Joseph takes Mary's shame upon himself, doesn't he? Joseph takes Mary home as his wife but had no union with her till she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Joseph's obedience leaves him to self-sacrifice and to submission because by taking Mary into his home, which was... um, the formal language for completing the marriage ceremony, he's taking upon himself her sin and her shame. Because the rest of the village isn't going to go, wow, Joseph, so noble, so self-sacrificing. What the village is going to see when they realize Mary is now showing, and yet they haven't finished the marriage, is they're going to assume that Mary's early and unexpected pregnancy had an early and not totally unexpected cause, Joseph himself. Imagine how that must feel to a man who's really been chased, who's really pursued holiness throughout his relationship. They're going to assume that he couldn't keep his pants up or robe down or whatever the metaphor is, depending on what you're wearing at the time. He's going to be identified with her shame and bear the repercussions of her sin, quote unquote. It's going to be a death to his own sense of righteousness. It's going to be a death to his reputation for righteousness in the community. It's going to be a death to his own self-image. It's going to be a little death all the way. Dick, um, really helpfully, and I'm really grateful, sent me this poem by uh, W.H. Auden, reflecting on Joseph's experience. It's quite short, but quite pointed. Joseph, have you heard what Mary says occurred? Yes, it may be so, but is it likely? No. Mary may be pure, but Joseph, are you sure? How is one to tell? Suppose, for instance, well, maybe, maybe not. But Joseph, you know what your world, of course, will say about you anyway. By taking Mary into his home, he's taking upon himself that struggle. Perhaps as important to him as a man who's really only a teenager at the time, 17, 18 at the outside, with all the natural struggles of holiness and hormones. Though you may take her into your home, you will not take her as your wife, to borrow, you know, language, cheesy language from those steamy harlequin romances. You've been abstinent. You've been chaste. You've been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And then God asks you to wait some more. She'll be tantalizingly close, living in your house, sharing your room with you, but still inaccessible until this child is born. It's a death to self. 
in a way that all of us, right, married or single, whoever struggles with chastity can attest. By taking Mary into his home, he's taking upon himself really a death to tradition and to culture and gender. You all understand the Middle East well enough to know, which is still true today, I think, in almost every culture, particularly those of which are Asian. He's giving up the right to father his own firstborn child, a son. The child he adopts as his own, that's why it says he called his name Jesus, but in doing so, he's giving up the privilege, the joy, and the right to know that that first child is mine, to know that firstborn son is mine, to know that my heir is mine. Just as God invaded Mary's body and said, will you allow me to use your womb? And she said, yes. God asked Joseph, can you not do the very thing you were designed to do for my sake as well? And Joseph embraces that little death to self. And when the child arrives, he does what God commands him to do. And he gives him the name Jesus. And when you give somebody a name in this biblical time, that very phrase suggests that you've adopted this child. You've made him yours. And by that choice to embrace a death to self, Joseph gives life. And we experience the truth that God is our salvation. You wonder with a father like that and a foundation like that what a child of his might learn to become or learn to do. There's a crazy inevitability about what Jesus comes to do, isn't there? How else can God fulfill his promises to David? Is it going to be a dynasty that lasts forever or something far greater, far bigger than we could even imagine? Is it going to be merely the restoration of a small people group caught in the crossroads of the Middle East at a time of war? Or will it be the wholesale renovation of creation which groans until this very day, till God completes his work of renewing it from beginning to end? Is it merely one man making a self-sacrificial choice out of love, duty, and obligation? Or is Christmas perhaps the story of one man's surprising, sacrificial, submissive choices? that lead to a surprising, dramatic conclusion some 33 years in the future, when grace and holiness meet, where God is proved to be right and the judge of the world and the forgiver of sin? Is it going to be the place where identity is reformed as somebody hears the voice of God, identifying them as the beloved, takes a bitter drink and finds glorification and redemption, is it going to be when somebody dies in our place and on our behalf, taking upon our sin and shame on the cross and offering forgiveness and salvation? The Christmas story is a story of tremendous surprise. Who would believe God would be made flesh and dwell among us? Who would believe that God would come in weakness to demonstrate his power? Who would believe that the Lord Almighty, creator of the universe, would strip himself of a voice? the ability to control his own body to begin the redemption of the world. The best stories, the truest stories, I think, have a surprise ending that when you look at how the story is set up seems incredibly inevitable and how it's going to turn out and brings us joy when we reread it and when we relive it year after year. Because the surprise never changes. 
the inevitability becomes clear. And then as audience and as participants, we, we dig in and we jump in, knowing exactly where the story's gonna go with all of the excitement of having that certainty and then delighting in the creativity and the design of the author as he puts it together. As we come to Christmas, let's startle, startle ourselves with the surprise and sing to God's glory for its inevitability. Christ has come. Salvation has arrived, and God is with us. Let me pray for us. Father, the Christmas story, like the Easter story, like so much of the Bible stories, is so familiar to us that it's easy to skip over it. We fill in the blanks, we walk, walk through our paces, and we move on. Startle us again, Lord, with the reality. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. A simple 15-year-old woman was able to respond, I am the Lord's servant, let it be to me as you have said. And the course of history in our lives has changed. A simple man makes a choice to die to self and to embrace sin and shame, and redemption enters the world. Surprise us, Lord, in these next four days as we move toward Christmas, so that in the expected patterns of giving and receiving, of family and feasting, we encounter you once more. And we're startled, we're shocked, we're surprised, we're humbled, and we rejoice. To you be the honor and glory forever. Amen.